Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in this week for Scott Schaefer. And we're excited to have one of California's U.S. Senators here with us in studio. Alex Padilla grew up in the San Fernando Valley neighborhood of Pacoima to two immigrant parents. He was elected to the Los Angeles City Council in 1999 and became L.A.'s youngest city council president, even serving as acting mayor in the aftermath of 9-11. That's right, voters in the rest of California might know Padilla for his years in the state Senate and his time as California's top election official during the pandemic and all those changes that came to voting with it. That's right. Senator Alex Padilla was appointed to his current job in January of 2021 after his predecessor was elected vice president. Kind of a hard act to follow. And he is on the ballot to keep that job this November. Senator Padilla, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you both. Thank you both. Good to be back. And in person. And in it's person. so lovely Long to see. Years. Yeah, it's been. Um, well, we want to kind of dive in. We should we should tell our listeners, we've had you on the show, I think, more than once before. And we've talked a lot about your very compelling biography. So if folks want to listen back to that, uh, get to know you a little better, we'll put that in the show notes. But we did want to talk about all the news that's happening. Gosh, it feels like after two years of not a lot happening, there's been a <laughs> lot going weren't on Weren't summers DC. usually quiet? Wasn't that a thing? Yeah. What happened to Quiet Summers? Once upon a time. It's, uh, I don't know, the whole world's been different last uh, few years. That's but true. hey, with all the, believe it or not, good news coming out of Congress, we'll absolutely take it. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a moment. But the reason you're actually in San Francisco today is because of monkeypox. You're going to be doing an event this morning um, with public health officials and others. And I know that you were one of the first senators to really call for additional vaccines for states. Can you just talk about where you think we are at in this moment? Has the federal government responded appropriately? What are you expecting to hear from folks in California this week? Yeah, what I'm expecting to continue to hear, both in the North and the South, is we need more help. We need more help. I think the Biden-Harris administration has been responsive to our commitments to send more uh, vaccines to uh, California, most populous state in the nation, and you know, home to a lot of vulnerable populations. Uh, but with all the commitments that have been put in place, we need more. We need more vaccines now. We need ongoing commitments to make sure that uh, uh, what is currently an outbreak stays just an outbreak because uh, we're still getting through the COVID-19 pandemic. So right. Hopefully we would have uh, learned some lessons. Right. Let's talk about those lessons. I mean, two and a half years of dealing with COVID, I guess, through the lens of this monkeypox outbreak, what have we learned? Maybe what have we not learned? 
Yeah, I think the biggest lesson is uh, making sure that we are acting aggressively uh, early on. Uh, and to that, I would say what a difference an administration makes. You know, I think a big part of the challenge, not just for California, but for the country in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic is that we had a denier uh, sitting in the Oval Office. And so it was uh, uh, frustrating to watch the, the federal government and a lot of the departments and agencies slow to respond in the earlier days of, of COVID. Uh, another big difference, like in the early days of COVID, uh, we didn't know what we were dealing with exactly. And there certainly was not a vaccine. You know, it took almost a year into uh, the true emergency of COVID for vaccines to come out. Only emergency use, but uh, use uh, uh, nonetheless. Uh, with monkeypox, we have a vaccine that we know works. So that's why uh, so many of my colleagues and I especially have been uh, trying to keep the pressure on uh, the CDC, others, to produce more, distribute more, pay special attention to the vulnerable populations. We know monkeypox kind of like COVID, is disproportionately impacting communities of color, lower-income communities. So let's get the resources and help where we know it's needed the most. Well, you mentioned the CDC, and you know we saw the CDC director recently issue a pretty scathing rebuke of the way the agency handled COVID-19. Uh, she said it must refocus itself on public health needs, respond faster, and provide information in a way people understand, which sounds sort of obvious. Um, is that enough? And you mentioned the politics. You know, I, I do think that the previous administration sort of muddled the message, but the CDC clearly some of these are sort of systemic issues that the directors recognizing that predate President Trump. Right. And uh, it's going to maybe sound uh, a little unorthodox, but just follow me here. This is actually an area where my prior experience as California Secretary of State uh, is helpful, uh, not just talking voter registration and getting people out to vote on a nonpartisan basis, but uh, how we communicate to the public, especially mm-hmm. coming from California, not just the most populous state in the nation, but the most diverse state in the nation. You have a lot of people, not just voters, whose first language is a language other than English. Uh, you have cultural sensitivities, diversity sensitivities to consider if you want to effectively communicate across the board, whether it's, you know, uh, how to participate in elections uh, information, whether it's how to get your kids back safely to school conversations. And when it comes to monkeypox or COVID, certainly accurate truth about uh, diseases, about vaccines, and how to protect yourself uh, and your families. Again, it's something that I think the prior administration wasn't very sensitive to, did not prioritize. Uh, We have a new administration, new majorities in Congress, frankly, uh, that do. Uh, So let's build on those lessons learned when it comes to effective messaging. Big news announced yesterday from the White House, President Biden for giving up to $10,000 in student loan debt, double that for Pell Grant recipients. What was your initial reaction to that announcement? Uh, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. I mean, I've been, uh, along with Senator Warren and other uh, colleagues, lobbying for uh, as much relief as we could possibly get. So uh, one of the first questions I get is, should it have been more? Like, I'll, we'll continue to press for more, but don't uh, disregard how significant this announcement was. I speak not just as a U.S. senator, uh, but as someone who relied heavily on financial aid, including Pell Grants, uh, when I was applying to college, I mean, I still have a vivid memory of filling out those financial aid forms for the first time, looking at uh, tuition at MIT a couple of decades ago compared to my dad's W-2. There was no way I could have afforded college uh, without financial aid, uh, and that included a lot of uh, loans. 
So whether it's uh, 10000 for those who qualify in one category, I think the majority of Californians who will qualify for the relief will qualify for the full $20,000 of relief. That is huge, for especially for, for uh, younger adults, maybe just starting a career, trying to save up to put a down payment on your, on your uh, first home. If you're a young parent, cost of child care is no joke these days. You know, so $20,000 of relief is, uh, is hugely significant. So for, you know, I think some 17 to 20 million people, they're going to have their debt wiped out entirely for another 20 million, a big portion of it. Um, that's a, Those are big numbers. And I think Democrats are hoping that that is not just sort of personal pocketbook relief to folks, but energizing politically. But on the other hand, you have some more centrist Dems and a lot of Republicans who you know, say this isn't fair. Why should the government be paying for this? How do you make the case politically as, you know, we approach this midterm election uh, to somebody who, you know, might be more skeptical of this plan? Yeah. Uh, I haven't come across too many of them yet, at least not genuine skepticism. There's a lot of cynicism that's out there. But I think the first thing I would share is, look, when when uh, people receive this relief uh, on on student debt, uh, they're going to be able to reinvest that money into the economy. Uh, I mentioned a couple of examples earlier, whether it's a young parent that can better afford maybe child care, uh, that's going to circulate uh, in your local economy for uh, people trying to save up to buy their first home. That's recirculating uh, into the economy. So everybody will benefit, uh, even though not everybody's carrying a student uh, debt. You well, know, for ca- if I can just say, isn't that one of the criticisms, right, that this is a economic stimulus at a time when Democrats have really tried to make the case that they are focused on inflation? This seems like pumping potentially a lot more money into the economy. Well, it's uh, uh, increasing spending power. We're, we're at a very unique time period when it comes to the economy. And, and there's a lot of head scratching among, quote unquote, experts in Washington uh, on this question of inflation. Uh, on the one hand, uh, yes, prices are go- have gone up in certain categories. Again, as a, as a father of three growing boys, I feel it. Uh, but at the same time, wages are up. At the same time, unemployment is at record lows. Uh, gas prices have begun to come down. And so uh, it, we're a little bit of uncharted territory. But the more we can help people uh, bounce the checkbook at the end of the month, that's really how we're tackling concerns of inflation. We've done it through the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, prescription drugs, you know, health care, premium subsidies, uh, energy costs, the climate elements of the Inflation Reduction Act. We have plans to... Uh, try to restore the child tax credit and subsidize child care, uh, and in this case, uh, helping the millions and millions of people across the country and the millions of people in California, 3.8 million Californians that are carrying student debt. So again, this is the, the, uh, the relief is real, it, it's significant, uh, and uh, it's going to benefit the economy. Quickly, before we move on to the many other topics we have, I'm just curious, you know, one, I think, pretty valid criticism is just the cost of college and the way that this does nothing to rein that in. Is that an area where there could be sort of a bipartisan approach um, and legislative solution? Because, as you said, I mean, the numbers we looked at 20, 25 years ago were eye-popping then, and it's way more expensive now. Right. And uh, so I I am aware that uh, whether it's both 
private and public right. university systems that are grappling with the same question. Why is college so expensive to begin with? You know, there's the vague, what does tuition really cover or not, separate and apart from housing, books, you know, travel, uh, et cetera. Uh, I think the COVID-19 pandemic, maybe one of the silver linings, is revisiting really how we structure a higher education experience. And is that a way to bring down costs? There was some experimentation with you know, online courses and open uh, courseware by a number of universities prior to the pandemic. Uh, early uh, uh, data showed that, look, there's some material that lends itself to maybe remote learning or uh, an online experience uh, and some uh, that that doesn't. And so where are the sweet spots and how can we uh, uh, leverage that to uh, reduce the cost of providing the education and therefore the cost of education and the cost of borrowing to cover an education? All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the newly signed Inflation Reduction Act and drought. California is taking some heat for avoiding federal water cutbacks this month. We'll hear what Senator Padilla thinks about that. Oh, and the midterms. Democrats face historic headwinds, but a summer of headlines about abortion rights and Trump investigations have liberal voters fired up. All that and more coming up with Senator Alex Padilla. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and we have with us in studio today Senator Alex Padilla. He is on the ballot this November against Republican Mark Moisier. And Senator, you know, one of the big issues facing the entire West is drought. Uh, we saw some cutbacks um, from Colorado River to western states, but not California. We know reservoirs at Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which provide critical water to Southern California, are dangerously low. We've been hearing some uh, chatter from the Arizona senators that California needs to Taking step up shots. and do more. <laughs> yeah. what What's your take on that? We have senior water rights, which is why California hasn't been asked to make these cutbacks yet. But should we be more proactive? Yeah. Uh, no, I appreciate the question. And uh, what's that old saying? Whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting <laughs> yes, over. Yes, exactly. Uh, a lot of times, uh, Western uh, uh, United States senators kind of do work together, uh, given our collective climate and our interconnectedness when it comes to infrastructure, not just 
water, uh, but especially water. But there are those differences. You mentioned that senior water rights. You know, California was, uh, you know, founded and uh, cities began to grow before other population centers. And so those senior water rights have uh, protected us uh, from that perspective. Uh, but I do take issue with my colleagues, whether it's Arizona, Nevada, elsewhere, uh, taking shots at California that we should uh, single-handedly bear the brunt of the drought when California has been such a significant leader. I mean, just in the last generation alone, uh, our population has nearly doubled, our economy has grown, and we're maybe you know, 12, 15% more water use today than we were a generation ago. We've done a lot in terms of conservation. We've done a lot in terms of efficiency. Clearly much more to do in this new reality because climate change is real. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping to keep productive, constructive conversations and negotiations going for all the states that draw water from uh, the Colorado River. The agreement that actually governs who draws what from the Colorado River is 100 years old. And clearly it was wildly over-optimistic about how much water was in the river Add on top of that climate change and just the increasing severity of droughts, is it time, in your opinion, to maybe redraw that agreement to kind of start from scratch instead of these patchwork fixes that we have to come back to year after year, drought after drought? Yeah, well, in an informal way, that's kind of what happens periodically. And this is what's happening now when the uh, uh, rainfall or the water levels in the Colorado River are not what we had projected or hoped they would be, then uh, what are the plans in place uh, to, to balance it out? You know, who's going to uh, reduce their uh, consumption or their deliveries and by how much. That's where the senior versus junior water rights come into play. We know water is used for a number of different things. California is a great example. A lot goes into our cities and towns for you know our use. A lot of it is kept in uh, uh, sort of natural places for environmental restoration or uh, maintenance efforts. A lot goes into agriculture. A lot, right? a lot. A lot, a lot, yeah. a lot goes into agriculture. But you know what? That's California. It's also Arizona. It's also right. Nevada. It's also Colorado. It's, it's everywhere. So how do you maintain uh, that balance. We're in a very different climate today than we were 100 years ago, than we were even 20 years ago. So the roadmap for how to deal with wet years versus dry years is kind of outdated. Uh, now, the federal government, because of the authority, will say, well, if you can voluntarily negotiate and come up with a plan that will get us through the next year, the next five years, that's always the best way to do it. We don't need state-to-state -state feuding or fighting. But if states cannot come to an agreement, then the federal government will exercise its authority, the Bureau of Reclamation to be specific here when it comes to the Colorado River, and will dictate you know, who, who gets how much of the paint. So it doesn't sound like you're ready to tear up that uh, those senior water rights. No, I, I, I don't think so, because I'm still <laughs> hopeful that we will reach the agreement and learn from the California experience, learn from the Nevada experience, learn from others' experience, and also look towards the future. You know, the old solutions of, well, let's, you know, uh, make sure that we have uh, water-efficient shower heads and uh, faucets uh, in homes. Well, that helped up until a certain point, but we need more new solutions. I think there's huge promise in water recycling, uh, which was very controversial just a couple of decades ago, but has been demonstrated to work in Orange County uh, and elsewhere in Southern California. Have crazy, yeah. crazy ideas like replacing leaky pipes, probably the single most cost-effective way uh, to conserve water in urban areas. We have a lot of old infrastructure. If we lost less water to leaks, that would be a huge help. Uh, and repairing our current infrastructure, including canals. Right. You know, there's a lot of yeah. excitement in the San Joaquin Valley about covering a lot of the open water canals with solar panels. 
So we, we lose less evaporation while creating uh, some we can, renewable energy. We can energy. hear the engineer over here. <laughs> right? I'm proud of it. Proud of it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk. I mean, one big part of this, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was drought relief, $4 billion, with uh, which uh, Kristen Sinema, colleague from Arizona, takes credit for. I guess to start, what's your relationship what's her like deal? with her? Yeah, what's her deal? <laughs> no. But do you guys talk like – I feel like in the press she's kind of an enigma because of her position over the past few years. But you must talk to her. She's a colleague. Yeah, I, I do. And uh, not just uh, you know unique amongst our, our colleagues on the Democratic side, but I think the, the, the Senate as a whole. Uh, I try my best to reach out to uh, all of my colleagues. It's, it's the only way to get business done. You may agree or disagree on a whole heck of a lot with other people, but – you're not going to find that common ground unless you're looking for it. And I will say this. I get questions by uh, Democrats in California all the time, What's, whether it's cinema, whether it's Mansion, whether it's some others. I say, look, if you look at the Democratic side of the aisle, you do have the cinemas and the mansions, but you also have the Bernie Sanders, and it's, it's a spectrum. Uh, if you, and the same on the Republican side. Uh, it's not all Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's. Uh, there's the Lisa Murkowski's and the others. And so, you know, it, it takes effort to uh, get to know your colleagues. Well, who's your most them. unexpected senator friendship? Unexpected senator friendship. Probably, the, I mean, I'll give you the very predictable one. Cory Booker and I sit next together in Judiciary Committee. Shocking, So yeah. we're commiserating <laughs> we, all the time. Senator as Booker, as yeah. relatively, for Senate standards, younger uh, <laughs> men, men of color. We do have a lot to, to that we've bonded on. But no, no Republicans. You're not like best friends with Ted Cruz or anyone like that. Uh, I'll tell you who I've been actually very productive with. uh, The other senator from Texas, uh, John Cornyn. And and here's a a story that I think people would appreciate. You remember about a year and a half ago when ice storms knocked out the electrical grid in Texas? Yeah. You know, I used to chair the Energy Committee in the state Senate. So I know a little bit about our infrastructure and our grid. So I approached them then saying, look, it's only a matter of time before wildfires in California threaten our electrical grid. There's got to be something we can do together here. Uh, We crafted a bill, which was then swept into the bipartisan infrastructure law. We asked for $1 billion. The president insisted on $5 billion to work with states, work with utilities to improve not just the reliability of the grid, but the resiliency of the grid. Let's make improvements that modernize the grid that reflects a changing climate. you got a California and a Texan uh, coming together. You couldn't say climate, probably, but... Uh, it was the power on <laughs> yeah. act, but the substance was right on, and we'll uh, see the benefits of that for years to come. Makes sense. Okay, midterms, the big political narrative nationally right now is that Democrats are having somewhat of a comeback summer. Are you buying that? Uh, look, I felt good uh, all throughout. You know, So context setting here, I was sworn in January 20th of 2021, hours after the Biden-Harris inauguration still in the depths of COVID in the wake of an insurrection. And as I look back at the last 19 months or so, you know, to think that we passed the American Rescue Plan at a critical time, funding for vaccines, state and local governments, small business assistance, et cetera, the bipartisan infrastructure law late last year, uh, just a couple of months ago, the uh, the Safer Communities Act in response to uh, mass shootings in America, uh, a bill that's going to invest significantly in chips and semiconductors, both on the manufacturing side and R&D. Uh, more recently, the Inflation Reduction Act, saving costs in health care, tackling climate in a historic fashion, and approving a whole bunch of federal judges along the way. I think the whole last year and a half, has been tremendously uh, productive. So uh, a lot to uh, talk about. Democrats have a story to tell as we're 70-some-odd days from the election. How much of it should be that positive message, this is what you're voting for, versus 
the other side, which is Democrats have a lot to sort of prop up to vote against, right? The abortion decision at the Supreme Court, the questions over democracy and whether the former president um, and his allies are trying to undermine our entire system. I mean, how do you balance that? And when you talk to voters, are they more energized by the positive or the negative? Yeah. Look, I don't think it's an either or. I think you've got to lay out both. And that's ultimately what elections are about. It's a choice. So if you're on the November ballot, how do you uh, compare and contrast with your opponent and draw the distinction for voters to decide who they prefer. You know, my side of the aisle, I just ran through a litany of what we stand for. Uh, If uh, Republicans were to reclaim majority in Congress, I believe uh, the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court is just the beginning. And if you care about voting rights, you know where Republicans stand. If you care about choice, you know where Republicans stand. If you care about addressing climate, you know where Republicans stand. They're still uh, in denial. If you care about immigration reform, long overdue in the United States, and no state has more at stake in it than California, you clearly know where Republicans stand on and on and on. And to think that uh, whether it's Trump or Trumpism is still so influential on the Republican side of the aisle, it is very, very dangerous. We saw what happened January 6th last year. Uh, we now have election de- deniers, not just you know on social media, but running for office, running for secretary of state and county uh, elections officials in other parts of the country. Uh, if they're successful, we're going to be in for a constitutional crisis in 2024. It's up to voters to decide if that's what we want or uh, not. You heard Governor Gavin Newsom a few months ago say, where the hell is my party? He was talking about the Dobbs decision, but also, I think, a lot of these rollbacks of civil rights that we're seeing in red states. What did you make of that? I mean, did the party need a wake up call? Yeah. The uh, look, I share the frustration sometimes and I rattled off what, uh, you know, if Republicans were to take over, we're not going to just not not make progress on some of these issues, immigration reform, choice, equality, climate, et cetera. But we will go backwards when Mitch McConnell says, yes, a national abortion ban uh, is on the agenda if they reclaim the majority. That is very uh, real. So it should rattle us. I think it's not just registering more voters, getting folks to the ballot box. But in the Senate, I've been outspoken since day one. Let's eliminate the filibuster. The filibuster is the only reason we haven't made progress uh, on all those issues. Uh, So if we uh, elect a few more uh, Democrats that are willing to uh, get rid of the filibuster, at least make some exemptions for these critical, critical issues, we'll continue to make progress that uh, we've just begun. Well, just on that issue, what could Democrats promise voters around abortion rights if Democrats maintain control of Senate, potentially yeah, the House. Couple, a I mean, new senators, is it yeah. just don't, you know, don't let Republicans take over and roll back these rights? I mean, given the, what you lay out about the filibuster, yeah. what can voters actually expect? Look, when it comes to choice, it's very simple. Codify Roe v. Wade into federal law. Uh, it is that simple. I do think there's more than 50 votes to get that done today, uh, but there's not the 60 votes to uh, overcome the filibuster obstacle to allow for the 50, 51 votes to get it done today. Same thing can be said on uh, securing our fundamental right to vote. Proud of the work that we did when I was Secretary of State to make it easier to register, stay registered, cast your ballot in California. What a contrast to what we see in Florida, in Georgia, in Texas, you know, so many other states. Uh, It's so pivotal. I mean, Roe v. Wade for 50 years, so did the Federal Voting Rights Act before the Supreme Court uh, gutted it in 2013. So, uh, 
restoring confidence in the Supreme Court, uh, restoring confidence in Congress. Our democratic institutions are under attack because of the big lie. Again, back to the Trumpism effect. We can turn the corner. Uh, I think that's all at stake this election. All right. Just a couple minutes left. We, we like to end on a, a more fun or personal note. So we talked before we went on air. Your kids are now 7, 9, and 14. You have one of the longest commutes. I guess Alaska might be a little further. <laughs> How has it been like being because you're one, you're one of the youngest senators, as we talked about, and one of the few with young children. What's that balance like? Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's been hard. It, it's been a challenge. The job in and of itself is a lot. I take my family responsibility seriously. You know, it's funny when negotiations are moving slow and there's a threat of we're going to have to work through the weekend. You know, I, I'm the first one that starts running around. Both sides of the aisle saying, I don't know about you, but I love my wife and kids and I want to get home. Let's get this done. Um, and on top of that, you know, immediately in the, in the campaign cycle as well. Um, uh, when I'm in Washington, I miss my family dearly. We're no strangers to, to FaceTime and Zoom and all that to try to stay connected. Um, and the time difference, that's something I right. didn't expect. You know, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I want to do is call my wife, Angela, and say hello. But a three, it's four a little, o'clock in yeah, the morning call, I wouldn't be where we to see. So, <laughs> what what happened? Whether it's the good morning or the good night call, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, figuring it out. We're yeah. trying to find our rhythm. Awesome. Well, Senator Alex Padilla, thank you so much for your time, for joining us. We should say you're on the ballot uh, this November against twice. Republican Mark Moisier twice. There's the race to fill out the rest of your appointed term and then a full six-year term. But thanks so much for spending some time with us this no, morning. Good to be back. Good to be back. And that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Guys, our producer and our engineer today is Christopher Beal. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to our Political Breakdown newsletter at kqed.org slash newsletters slash political breakdown. This morning, Marisa, we have a preview of the end of the legislative session. Bills we're watching on the fast food industry, on Governor Newsom's controversial care court plan. Just about a week left to get all that done. And then that veto of injection sites that you covered. That's right. Newsom's getting a lot of heat from supporters of that and a big sigh of relief, from probably from some of his own political backers who would like to see him on the ballot in 2024. So check that out and sign up for more. All right, everyone. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at M Lagos. Have a good one. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its 
best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.